Thanks for joining the Heights Church podcast today. We hope that you enjoy the message. If you're in the Sydney area, be sure to join us at the Heights Church at Golston Road, Hornsby Heights, Sydney, Australia. Good morning, church. Our Bible reading is Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. If you want to read from the Pew Bible, it's page 914. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Now we do continue this morning uh, in our series through the book of Romans. Um, if you want to have a Bible open in front of you uh, this morning, this would be a good one. We're in chapter 4 today. Uh, and let me tell you, this is an awesome chapter of the Bible. Of course, you say that about every chapter, but I love Romans chapter 4. I love what this text uh, is doing and saying uh, here. And I love what I think, what it can say to us even this morning. We find ourselves here after Paul has painted a picture in chapters 1 to 3, especially of how humankind, apart from God, uh, were and are 
in a bad way. And importantly, we read and we found out that, that not only are we in a bad way, that we're unable to sort of externalise that as, as an other, as another group of people, as, oh, yes, yes, they are in a bad way, but no, absolutely, this is, this is universal, but it's also personal, uh, that it applies to each and every one of us. In you know, Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 10, you know, there's no one righteous, not even one, and then culminating in verse 23, that who has sinned and fall short? All of us, all have fallen short of the glory of God in our sin, that because of our sin, because of our shortfalls, we have a problem, and that problem is that we fall short of the best thing that there is, the glory of God. And as Mark preached last week uh, about how, okay, into that context, God brings the good news of the gospel. That another way to have the righteousness that we need to stand acceptable in the holiness of God, to, to stand in his glory, to, to know God. And there's another way that that has been presented to us, namely in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the good news of the gospel is that this isn't something that we need to work for, but rather this is something that we receive by faith. And that by faith, uh, we are accounted as righteous, that God sees us as totally righteous. And so in chapter four, uh, Paul here turns and he wants to okay, expand upon what he said at the end of chapter three, particularly about a few ideas. He wants to explain to them more about what it means to receive the righteousness of God, but he also wants to answer sort of a question, a lingering question that gets introduced here in chapter three, but it's lingering around. And, and, and you can tell in the audience that he's writing this to, this is just an, a lingering question of, okay, but what about the Old Testament law? We cannot have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of the law, the Old Testament law being so significant, being presented to us as this thing that we need to aim for. And then, okay, yes, I want to believe in Jesus, and I do, but what about the law? What about my righteousness? Do, do I still bring something to the table? And what's fantastic about this is that even in our audience right now, we might be thinking, well, I'm not really too caught up on, on the, the details of the Old Testament law. Okay, but in the same way, we too definitely get caught up uh, in, in the way that we consider the, the salvation that we receive from God. We get mixed up. We, yes, go, I receive that, but then we are also always constantly guilty of going, but I'm also going to add a little bit of my own righteousness. It's something that we all do, whether subconsciously or even more than that, it's something that we all do. So into this lingering question, Paul does something which I just think is amazing. He introduces uh, the Old Testament character of Abraham and his, the story of Abraham as sort of a way to just dismantle the mindset that we can add something to the free gift of grace. And the example of Abraham does, it does two significant things here that we're going to go through this morning. First of all, it provides a personal illustration of the good news that's outlined at the end of chapter three. But it also, it proves something important. It proves uh, that God offering his righteousness to somebody who is not Jewish is not a new notion that began with Jesus 
but rather it was an ancient one that can get traced all the way back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. Okay, so with all that in mind, let me just pray very quickly as we, uh, as we uh, approach this and as we get our heads around some of the ideas that Paul is presenting here in chapter 4. Uh, Lord God, I pray this morning that in our hearts that where we need to be challenged, that you would challenge us. And God, where we need uh, mindsets and things in the way that we think about our salvation dismantled, I pray, God, that your words this morning would dismantle what needs to be dismantled in order that each of us here would be able to simply receive the free gift that you offer to each and every one of us. And we thank you for that free gift in the person and work of Jesus. And we pray in his mighty and precious name. Amen. Now, I know it's Sunday and most of us don't work on Sunday. The last thing you want me to do is bring up, okay, your work. But just imagine for me, okay, that you're at work right now, maybe throughout the week, and what happens to you is that your boss uh, sidles over to you with a big grin on their face uh, and they say to you, guess what? I've got a present for you today. I've got a gift for you today. I really I came to work this morning and I really I wanted I wanted to surprise you with something special. And they say to you, okay, close your eyes, okay, put out your hands, okay, I'm gonna give you this gift. And then your boss places into your hands uh, your pay slip. Open your eyes. Surprise. Here's your present. And your boss says, look, I decided that I, I wanted to treat you this week. I really wanted to just really, just really treat you. Uh, so what I did was uh, I paid you for your job. And then your boss leaves and he's, your boss is telling everybody, okay, you won't guess how generous and gracious I've been uh, today. You know, I, I gave this amazing gift. I'm, I'm, I've given this just gracious, generous thing. Uh, I, paid, I paid this person this week for their job. You would be sitting there thinking to yourself, let's get this straight. This is not a gift, right? This is not a present. Uh, that pay, due to the arrangement that we have, uh, it's, it's mine. We, we have an arrangement here, okay? I am obligated to, to give you my work, and the part of the arrangement here is that you are obligated to then give me my pay. Like, this is how the whole system works. This is not a gift here. There are no presents under the tree in this arrangement. No, this is prearranged. I work, you pay. That's not a gift. But if your boss was to say to you, okay, I've got a present for you, I've got a surprise. Okay, it's not your pay, okay, but it's $1 million just because. Okay, now we're talking. That's a gift. Why did you give that? I just wanted to give it to you. It's yours. Now it's a gift, right? Now it's a gift. Well, that idea is one of the things that Paul's bringing to this idea. He's, he's comparing the difference between the obligated uh, payment that we might receive in sort of a workplace type arrangement, whatever that might look like. He's comparing that with a gift. And this is, what, this is the problem. This is the thing that we often do is that often when we receive salvation, we think to ourselves that it is, well, yes, th thank you for your salvation, 
but I've received that because, like, I'm a Christian, right? You know, thank you, but also, like, isn't that the arrangement? I go to church. I'm, like, generally, like, a good person. Yes, I put my faith in your son, Jesus. Like, I did my part. Like, aren't you just obligated to give me that part of the arrangement? And what Paul is saying here is that receiving uh, the free gift of grace, receiving the righteousness that God gives us in Jesus is not like receiving uh, payment for work done because we have no capacity and have never had the capacity to provide the work for the payment. No, the crediting uh, of righteousness to us is something that occurs by the grace of God and then received, simply just taken and received through faith. Paul says that faith is our mechanism by receiving the righteousness that God gives us. And, and the, the terminology that's used here is crediting. It is like a financial term here. It's, it's a term that's about uh, paying a debt or giving an amount of money that is not earned, that's not yours. It's, it's just given. It's like going, uh, opening up your online banking tomorrow and a huge amount of money has been credited to you. It's yours, not because you did anything to it, but somebody placed it in there for you. That's what Paul says that God does for us. It's a transfer that by trust we receive. Tim Keller says that saving faith is not believing that God is there. Further, it's not even believing in a God who saves. No, it is believing God when he promises a way of salvation by grace. Grace, that undeserved favour that Mark talked about last week that stands opposite to the principle of work, opposite to the principle of I earned this, that it's everything to do with receiving freely and nothing to do with earning and meriting uh, anything from God. And so this morning we need to remember and be reminded what Paul is trying to remind us here in Romans chapter 4, that the only answer that we can ever give for how we've received our salvation, the only answer that we ever have, whether it's your first day of being a Christian or whether it's on your last day of being a Christian, the only answer that we ever have is that it is because of what Jesus did for me. That's it. We come to God with our hands open and say, I have nothing to give. I've never had anything to give. All I can do is hope that what you've given me is enough for my righteousness. And you know what, God? I I don't have anything, but I trust that what you've given me is enough. And you think to yourself, well, this is obvious. It's like Christianity 101. But one of the things that happens is we get muddled up in this. The longer we go to church, the longer we do things that are involved in just Christianity, volunteering, being involved at church, uh, uh, serving, uh, learning more about the Bible, the more things that we do, okay, these good things that God wants us to do, they start to creep into our hearts and our lives and we start to like add them into like part of why God thinks that we're good. Someone asked Billy Graham, and it was his last interview before he, before he died, why do you think God will let you into heaven? And Billy Graham said, I won't be in heaven because I've preached to large crowds or because I've tried to live a good life. No, I'll be in heaven for one reason. Many years ago, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
who died on the cross to make our forgiveness possible and rose again from the dead to give us eternal life. That's it. And if you think about Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount, he begins his Sermon of the Mount with blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who know they're poor. They've got nothing to give for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he ends the Sermon of the Mount by talking about those that on judgment day, on the last day, that he says, many will come to me on that day. Many will come to Jesus on the last day and say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all of these amazing things? Didn't I do all these religious tasks? Didn't I preach to large crowds? Didn't I volunteer at youth group? Didn't I drive my kids to revive even though I was all the way at Epping? Okay, didn't I go to church most Sundays? Didn't I like not hurt anybody? Didn't I like paint and build and serve and sweat and give my money? Look at all the things that I did, Jesus. And Jesus says that on that day I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because Jesus says to us, the way that we can come and know God isn't by what we bring, but it's through faith in what he has done. And so Paul then turns to like my favorite argument in the book of Romans. And this is like, this is it. This is the whole argument. This is the whole, this is the whole crux of Romans chapter four. And it's this question. When was Abraham saved? Or perhaps to put it another way, when did God consider Abraham as righteous? This is the question Paul asks. And it's such a good question because for the, the, the Jewish contingent of the Roman church, uh, and, and even for anybody else that's coming, you open up the Bible, okay, you know, the first two thirds, uh, this is uh, before Jesus, he goes, when was Abraham saved? The whole argument is there. The whole argument is about the timing of Abraham's salvation and righteousness. And because this is the story, in Genesis, all the way back in chapter 12, God chooses a a man named Abram, later to be renamed Abraham, and he chooses him and he promises him, he says, you will be a father, uh, you'll be a father of many nations. God will one day, okay, through your descendants, bring a blessing to the whole entire world. From you, you will be people that will do things that you cannot possibly even imagine right now. A significant promise to anyone, but even more significant to Abram, later to be renamed Abraham, because he and his wife, as, as Paul so delicately phrased in our text in Romans chapter 4, their bodies were as good as dead, which is just like, never say that about somebody, I don't think. You would ever say that to someone. But this is the issue. He wasn't just promising it to just some young couple who's got the, their whole life ahead of them. He promises it to a couple who are, who are more on the older side of things, who have never been able to have children. He doesn't just promise it to somebody where it's going to be like, well, that probably would have happened anyway. He makes a promise about generations to come, to come from a couple who have never been able to have kids and by every sort of indicator should be like letting that possibility go from their minds. And he says that you are going to, you're going to have a kid and you're going to have many kids and from those kids are going to be more kids, more and more kids and from them one day 
will be a, 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 an offspring that will be a blessing to the whole world. Through our lens now, we understand this is an original promise about Jesus who would one day come through the nation of Israel, who would be a blessing to the whole world, including us here today, this morning. It says in Galatians chapter 3 about this, that scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And so the issue is, God makes this promise. And Paul simply says, in order for this promise to be fulfilled, did it depend on Abraham keeping the law? Did it depend on Abraham being good enough? Did it depend on Abraham being uh, Jewish enough, fulfilling all of the Old Testament commands? And the best thing about going all the way back to Abraham is that Abraham came before anything that was even slightly to do with the law had even been thought of as a concept. And so when the text all the way back there in Genesis 15 says that when Abraham received that promise, what did he do? He believed God. He trusted God. Against all hope, against all logic, against all everything, it said Abraham trusted God. Trusted God and trusted his promise. And you might have times in your life where you think to yourself, I want to trust God, but it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I can't, I, it doesn't, it's not working. I don't see it. I don't see how this is going to happen. Abraham is such a good example because against all hope, against all everything, he just went, you know what? You are God. I trust you. Don't need to know the details. I don't need to know the specifics. I don't even know how, need to know how this is going to work. But God, I trust you. I trust you. And then it says, and this is not New Testament, this is Old Testament, this is Genesis chapter 15. This is like right back at the start. Because Abraham trusted God, God credited him as righteous. That's what it says all the way back there. God considered him as righteous. God declared him as righteous. God declared him as being somebody who was uh, totally and utterly uh, good enough to be in his presence and to know him. Not because he did anything, but because he trusted God. And so if righteousness is made available to Abraham Simply through receiving it by faith, Paul says, then why can't that also be available to everybody? He talks about the fact that, okay, Abraham received this by faith, it's credited as righteous, and this is hundreds of years before Moses comes down with the law from Sinai, before the law could even exist. So he's saying, Okay, don't you're so caught up on what you're adding into the mix, particularly in this situation, the law, you're not realizing that the father of Israel was credited as righteous hundreds of years before the law that you're so caught up on even existed. 
And even if you were to even take it back further, okay, and, and, and you know, as Paul likes to do, the word circumcision is, is written more times than I'm personally comfortable with, with my 2023 brain. But the point of this was, is that that particular command, that particular requirement that God would later uh, place on, uh, on Abraham and the Jewish people as part of a big thing, that was used as a specific example because what he's saying is, is that, look, even like the first requirement as a type, as an example that represents all of it, it even the promise that Abraham received and was credited as righteous, that even happens before the first requirement is ever placed on him. Abraham received it by faith and from that point on he aligns his whole life around it. He starts walking around with a joy and a confidence regarding the future. Okay, in, in modern terms, he, he builds the nursery, he buys the cot, he buys the pram. His wife is, is elderly, he's elderly, there's not even like a positive pregnancy test, but they're, they're going all in on the promise because he was fully convinced that the one who promised it was good for it. And Paul says it's the same for us. We get to also receive what God has promised to us, salvation, righteousness through Jesus, and that all we need to do is receive it by faith because when we do, we are good enough. We are credited as righteous. Just by receiving what God has done for us, we are righteous. We believe Jesus when he said, it is finished. And we too can and should then arrange our life around that in confidence, that we too should view ourselves in the same way as righteous. We should have that that utter confidence to do so. There are a lot of things that Abraham could have brought in in terms of doubt. There are a lot of things in our life that we could bring in terms of doubt. And perhaps later on, there's a lot of things that Abraham could have added into the mix to make himself think, well, like, yes, I'm righteous because of what I've done, but he never had to do that because he was declared totally righteous all the way back before a requirement was ever placed on him. And so I think really what I want us to be challenged by this morning is what are you adding into the mix? What are you doing in terms of the good things that you do in your life? What are you doing with that in the way that you think about them? Are you even 1% placing your faith in those things uh, as well as your faith in Jesus? There's a movie uh, that was made in 1963. It's called The Lilies of the Field. And the main character, his name was Homer Smith, uh, he, he, he tries to help some nuns uh, build a chapel. And he realises that the job's too big for him. He can't do it alone. And so what he does is he goes into the town and he goes to the business owners who are around and he asks them sort of like for financial donations. Can you give to this cause? These, these nuns, they've come uh, from Austria or something. It's in America. They can't speak English. They want to build a chapel. Uh, I'm trying to help them out. Can you donate any any of your money, just like help this project for, you know, for the town, and, and it'll mean the town will have a chapel. Well, one of the business owners is a cafe owner named Juan, and Juan initially refuses to give any money at all to the cause. He's not buying it. 
He's not about, I don't, I'm not helping the nuns. I, the nuns are doing their own thing. I'm not helping the nuns. And Juan didn't, he didn't believe in God, first of all. He didn't believe that the nuns were doing something good. He was a bit sceptical about being scammed. Uh, he thought the whole thing perhaps was potentially a con. Uh, but eventually Juan goes and he checks out the project that this Homer Smith is doing for the nuns. And what he does, he sees the project and eventually the whole thing flips around and by the end of the story, he not only donates money into the mix, but he volunteers himself uh, and his own work to help build the chapel. And then he goes and finds other workers who are going to go and volunteer themselves. He does like an amazing thing to make this chapel possible. Well, later in the movie, Juan is asked, uh, about why, why he is doing this. What's going on? We're going to watch a clip. It's an old movie. It's black and white. It's a bit quiet. There are subtitles, hopefully. Okay. Uh, but let's just have a look at how Juan answers the question of why he's been doing these good things. <laughs> That's one in the middle. Okay, boss. The things about being a youth pastor is that you, you, you use modern like pop cultural like movie examples to illustrate your point, things that are relevant uh, to our young people. So that's why I've used this clip this morning uh, to, to explain uh, perhaps what I'm talking about here. Okay, but Juan is asked any question, like, what, why are you doing this? And what's the word that he uses? It starts with I, Insh- it's insurance. It's a, it's adjusting, it's just adjusting. He didn't believe in God, but just in case, just in, just in case the Christians are right, just in case there's an eternal life, he does all these like good works just to cover all bases. He doesn't have a faith. He has a just in case insurance policy that ultimately won't hold up under the microscope. And ultimately, even for those of us who do believe in God, who have come to him in faith, that is a little bit of sometimes how we still approach it. We hedge our bets. The Christian author, Tony Edwards, he calls this a mutual fund faith. 
One where the investment is spread out, so the risk is spread out. But when it comes to faith, it doesn't and it can't work like that. We cannot place our faith in God and his power, but also a little bit in ourselves and what we do and who we are. Abraham trusted God before he ever did anything for God and his trust in God was enough that he would be considered righteous before God. And we need to remember, we need to know that it's the same for us that we come to God and all we've got, all we've got, no matter what part of the timeline we come to him, all we've got is the promise that he's made to us in Jesus. That's it. That's all we've got. We have nothing to pay to God, nothing to give to God, except what he has paid for us in the person and work of Jesus. That our faith is in some ways merely just laying our hand upon the gift that he gives us. That although we are faithless, he was faithful. That although we fall short, he found a way, he made a way for us to no longer fall short. And so this morning, I want you, if you've been a Christian for a long time, I want you to consider the ways that you've muddled this up in your mind and come again to the throne of Jesus Christ and say, all I have is what you've given me. And perhaps this morning, you, you are sitting there thinking, well, I've also been approaching God with sort of an insurance policy. I also know, I don't know if I really do believe. I would encourage you this morning to, to either step in or to step out, to be honest, because the insurance policy method doesn't work. You come before the throne of God on judgment day, he doesn't want an insurance policy. All that we can give him is our faith to say, what you've given to me, God, that's it. That's all I've got. From start to finish, that's it. And so although we are powerless, he is powerful. He is faithful and just. He's gracious to us. And that ultimately this morning, as it was for the Roman church in the first century, wrestling with how the law and what they could bring to the table, how that works, it's the same for us today. We come empty-handed. Let's pray now to God. We're going to worship again. Let's come to him with that attitude of, I need you, God. Lord, this morning we consider this text here and how you worked and interacted with and spoke to Abraham. And God, we pray this morning, as your word says, that the promise of your righteousness being credited to Abraham wasn't just a word for him, but it was a word for even us here today. And may it be a word for every single person in this building right now, that through just our simple faith and receiving, that your righteousness, your goodness, your salvation can be given to us and credited to us, that that is a word for us this morning. And I pray, Lord, for those who maybe could be teetering on the edge of what it means to be someone of faith. I pray this morning that, that you would be working in their hearts. And Lord, you would just totally uncomplicate the whole thing even right now. Make it as simple as it has ever been all the way back even to Abraham. Make it simple for all of us this morning, Lord, that simply we just trust you. 
We just trust you. We don't get it. We don't know everything, but we trust you. And so, Lord, that's it. That's all we bring to you this morning is the fact that we just humbly say to you, Lord, we trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.